Our sermon today will be taken from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1 to 12. This is the word of God. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life, and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, so we will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your fats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Thus says the Lord. Thanks, Margie. All right. So our sermon text today is taken from Proverbs chapter 3, and I was thinking about what passage to study as we enter into the new year, and any passage really would be great, but I decided to take a passage from a wisdom literature, which is the book of Proverbs, because we haven't really studied a proverb before um, as a church, and it seemed like a good time to do it as we enter into 2017. So I originally chose Proverbs chapter 3 because I thought I'd talk about this one thing that I wanted to talk about, but then after I studied it, I realized that it didn't really talk about that at all. Um, tells you how much I know about Proverbs. Um, however, coincidentally, this chapter does talk about something that many people usually say or talk about in the beginning of a new year, which is health and wealth, right? You, you hear that a lot. At New Year's, people would wish each other health and wealth and long life and success, which aren't bad things, but our author here, um, as we just read, also wishes us the same things. He wishes us success and wealth, a long life, and health. However, his understanding of health and wealth is a little different than what we or many may say when we wish each other a long life and prosperity and health and wealth in this new year. So I thought it could be a good time to understand God's definition of health and wealth as we enter into this new year where those two things seem to be in the forefront of people's minds. So let's get into it. There's three things I want to point out from our passage today. One, who gets to define health and wealth? Two, the man who is truly healthy and wealthy. Three, he who gave up his health and his wealth. Who gets to define health and wealth? The man who is truly healthy and wealthy. He who gave up his health and his wealth. Let's pray before entering into the word of God. Father, give us mercy as us finite man tries to enter into your infinite wisdom as we try to comprehend it, as we try to understand it and apply it in our lives. Be gracious to us, work in our hearts, but also work in our minds that we can follow what you have revealed to us in your word. Thank you, Father, and let our hearts be closer to you and be lured again and, and fascinated again with the gospel as we study of it through this chapter of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, first point, let's get into it. Who gets to define health and wealth? A friend of mine once led a Bible study in college. This Bible study had about 20 people in it. He then divided these 20 people into three different groups. And then he told all of them a short story. 
He told them a story about a man dressed in a black suit and in a black tie. This man was reading a newspaper and he was waiting for a bus in the bus station. Then he asked each group, so three groups, he asked each group to tell us what's going on with this man. Give us meaning to this story. So they talked about it amongst themselves. One group came up and said, well, the story is, the meaning of this is that there's a man going to a friend's funeral. That's why he's dressed in black and a black tie. And he's reading a newspaper because he's trying, to get it, he's trying to get his mind off the sadness of the fact that his friend just passed away as he's waiting for a bus. Okay. Second group, what's your definition of the story? He said, well, this guy is actually going to his first job interview. And he's trying to dress to impress with his black shirt and black tie, or black suit and black tie. And he's waiting for the bus. To kill time, he's reading a newspaper to wait for the bus. Okay. Third group, what's your understanding of the story? Third group said, well, actually, this guy, he's an FBI agent, you see. He's wearing a black suit, he's wearing a black tie, and he's reading a newspaper to hide from his target. He's spying on him and following him. But okay. What was the point of that exercise? The point my friend is trying to bring across was that there's three different meanings to one event. It's to, help us make, it's to help us realize that our definition of something depends very highly on who the narrator is. Our definition of something de depends very highly on who the narrator, who the storyteller is, right? Same things, same black suit, same newspaper, but different meanings associated to these different things depending on who's telling the story, depending on who has authority to be the narrator. Things like health and wealth are no exception. Who we think the narrator of life, or the main storyteller in life is, he, she, or it, gets to define the meaning, the true meaning, of health and wealth. Who holds the authority in our lives? Well, in the Bible, it says that Christians are in constant struggle between who gets to have ultimate authority, and the Bible tells us we struggle between God, being the ultimate narrator, and the world. Those two things daily fight in our hearts to be the narrator, to be the storyteller, to be the one who has the authority and the right to define things in our lives, including health and wealth. We know some of these verses, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be conformed to the world, follow the, the will of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 18. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. They're things that are seen and unseen. There's a constant struggle, right? And our question for this first, first point is, who have we given authority to define health and wealth? What is that? What is health and wealth? Has our understanding of health and wealth been defined by the world or by God? Has it been defined by what is seen and temporary or by what is unseen and eternal? Who have we given authority to narrate the story of our lives? The Bible, along with our passage today, tells us it's wisest to let God be the narrator. It's wisest to let Him have the authority and right to define things in our lives, including health and wealth. Who's the narrator in our passage today? Verse 1, it says, My son. Who's speaking here? A father to a son? Most likely Solomon, assuming a fatherly figure to people in his kingdom. But it goes way beyond that. It's not just 
Solomon or an earthly father figure, the narrator is, is God himself. How do we know this? How do you know that the narrator is God? Because God is the only person that can actually follow through with the promises you see in this passage. Look at verses 1 and 2. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Why? What's the promise in verse 2? For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. You see, an earthly father can't promise that because he can't follow through on that. He can't give people a longer life, right? But, an earth, but a heavenly father can. So who's in view here is ultimately God, our heavenly father. And the rest of this passage is also very God-centered. Verse 5, trust in the Lord. Verse 7, fear the Lord. Verse 9, honor the Lord. Verse 12, even our last verse, describes the Lord as the father. So the commandments referring to God as a narrator, referring to his laws, which is the Torah, the first five, most likely the first five books of the Old Testament, which is also called the law. So God, our Heavenly Father, is a narrator here. Okay, who is God writing to? Just to sons? Just to male children? No, throughout the book, mentioned mothers, chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 4, verse 3, and daughters and women are also mentioned. So this is wisdom that our Heavenly Father, God, is giving to all of his people. Here's, here's what God is saying. My son, my children, my people, let me give you wisdom and insight. And then what does he go on defining? Verse 2, for a length of days and year of life and peace that will add to you. Verse 8, it will be healing to your flesh. What's he defining there? He's talking about a long life, isn't he? He's defining health, isn't he? Verse 4, so you will find favor and good success. He's defining what good success is. Verse 10, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats be bursting with wine. What is he talking about? Wealth, is he not? He's saying, here are the things, let me narrate, let me be the narrator, and I'll help define these things for you. I'll tell you the true meaning of them. Now, before we move on to the second point, why should we listen to God, and why should we take his definition of these things and not the world's? Why? Who gave God authority to be the ultimate definer and narrator of our story? Why does he get to say what health and wealth is? Well, if you came earlier to the call to worship, we read from the book of Job, and the story of Job told, tells a story about a man who was once healthy and wealthy. You know, you know this story, I think most of you do. One day, this healthy and wealthy man was hit by a disaster, and he lost all of his health and his earthly wealth. He was covered in sores from the bottom of his foot to the crown of his head, it says, Job chapter 2. Then Job and his friends asked God why. And they started speculating the reasons why God would let this hit Job. Why would, why, would, why would God take away God's, I mean, why would God take away Job's health and wealth? Where, when God in chapter 1 said that Job was a blameless and upright man. That's what it says in chapter 1. Why would God take away health and wealth from a blameless and upright man? And then Job started speculating, and his friends started speculating, and they kind of justified Job, and they kind of made all these claims about God. And Job, at the end of the book, almost kind of questioned God's authority in doing so. And how does God answer Job and his friends? It's very interesting. God doesn't tell them why. They asked, why did you take this away? God didn't tell them why. But what he did, he reclaimed authority for, as narrator in his life. He didn't tell them why. He reminded them of who he is. That's his answer. Let, let's read the call to worship again. Um, Job asked, why God? And this is God's answer. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? 
Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked into the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? And he continues and continues and continues. Can you lift up the voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? He continues his answer to Job. Why did you take this away from me? God's saying, I'm God. Do you have knowledge to all these things? Have Have you seen the depths of the earth? And it feels kind of mean and insensitive, right? Why would God answer like this to somebody who's suffering? But he realizes this is what Job, a suffering person, truly needs. What would be most loving for God to do for Job, a suffering person, is to help him understand that even in momentary loss, a child of God who trusts in Christ, what's best for this person is not to know why it happened, but to know that God is God. And to know that to trust and obey him is primary in his life. And that this is still within his eternal wisdom and plan. God seems to think that telling who he is is how we can grow in rest and trust and obedience in him. And that's much more beneficial to us than explaining to us why we lost it. Okay. Many times have we not asked the question, but it makes no sense why you've taken my wealth and my health away. I've done nothing wrong. Do you not love me? I've asked that multiple times, right? Uh, why did this happen to me? I don't feel like I've done anything specifically wrong. Why do you, do you not love me? God answers us through his word, the scripture, through the book of Job. Were you there when I laid down the foundations of the earth? Have you comprehended the expanses of the earth? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Do you have eternal knowledge like me? If not then don't so quickly conclude that I don't love you based on this momentary affliction. You only have a snippet of eternity. Your definition of health and wealth has been defined mostly by the world, by finite man. If you have my definition of health and wealth, you'll see that I haven't robbed you from any of it. Have you entered the depths and darkness of the earth? Have have you seen the gates of hell? Have you walked the deep? Can you lift up the clouds and send forth lightning? My son, don't so quickly conclude that I don't love you. Don't conclude that I've taken away health and wealth when your definition of those things have been influenced highly by the world. So let's move on to our second point. If God has the authority to narrate our lives and define things like health and wealth and long life, what is God's definition of these things and how can we get it? Right? Point two, the man who is truly healthy and wealthy. Okay, so first point, we've established God is the one that has the right to define these things. Second point, how then can we get God's definition of health and wealth? Well, let's let's, let's study from this passage. First, we must know how to read this passage in the context it's in. Remember, one of the ways to get true meaning from Scripture is to understand the literary genre that a particular passage is in. You, you have to know what the literary genre is to know how to get meaning out of it. Just like any book, you wouldn't approach someone's biography in the same way you approach a science fiction novel, right? It's different literary genres, genres have different rules of how to approach them. You won't approach a poetry in the same way you would approach historical narrative. 
They have different rules because there's different literary genres. You have to read it in the genre it's in to get meaning. So what literary book is Proverbs? It's often called wisdom literature. It's not exactly like, but should be almost read familiar to poetry. Okay, not exactly like, but similar to poetry. Now, like poetry, there's a structure here. This is how we get God's definition of health and wealth and things he mentioned here. Notice the connection the author intentionally puts between the odd verses and the even verses in our passage. If you take a look at it, there's a connection. Odd verses, verses 1, verse 3, verse 5, verse 7, the odd-numbered verses are all commands, right? Do this, don't do that. The even-numbered verses, 2, 4, 6, are all results related to that command. Example, verse 1, command, my son, do not forget my, my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandment. Command, why? Verse 2, for length of days and years of life and peace, <coughs> they will add to you. Verse 3, odd number verse, command, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablets of your heart, command. Why? Verse 4, even number verse, so you'll find good favor and good success in the sight of God and man. You see it? Verse 1s are commands. Or, uh, uh, the odd number verses are commands. The even number verses are results of that command. See, you must define the even numbered promises you find in, in verses 2, 4, 6, 10 in relation, in direct relation to the commands of the odd numbered verses. You must define long life, verse 2, in relation to verse 1. You must define success verse 4, in relation to verse 3. 1 and 2, 3 and 4. There's a connection. So let's do that. Let's, let's start. First one, let's, let's start with verses 1 and 2. We all wish people health and a long life in the beginning of the year. Right? Let's see how God defines health and long life. Verse 1, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Why? For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. See, the, top of the type of long days and long life God's talking about here is the type that comes out of obedience to his commandments. What type of long life comes out of obedience to God's commandments? Is it just a long life on earth? Maybe the author is talking about that, but ultimately the type of long life we get out of obeying God's commandments is eternal life. It's life forever. That's what it's referring to here. Matthew 7 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Those are the ones who enter the kingdom of heaven, the ones who are obeying. It's John chapter 8, verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The type of life, long life here, is an eternal long life with God, not just earthly long life, you see? If you obey God, you'll have a long life, not referring to 100, 200 years on earth, referring to forever with God, okay? How about success? How does God define success? Let's go to verse 3 and 4, that, that couple. Verse 3, the command. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablets of your heart. Why? Verse 4. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. So verse 4, success is defined as intricately related to our steadfast love and faithfulness to God. Verse 3, right? Verse 4 continues to tell us a type of success. It's in the sight of God and man. That's, that's the type of success God's talking about here. Okay, let me just go through some other verses in the Bible of when it is said of other people who found favor in the sight of God and man. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 26. 
Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. The context here isn't God giving Samuel occupational success. Samuel here was ministering in the temple of the Lord while the other sons of Eli were committing adultery. God gave him favor and success. Jesus, in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Finding favor with God and man was not said in the context of God making Jesus financially rich, but in the context that Jesus was faithful, he was actually also ministering in the temple of God or just got done doing that. He's the one who has favor between God and man. So, success, by God's definition, with the, with the verse 3 and verse 4 couple, is not referring to God financially blessing us with professional increase or, or capital increase, as the world often defines it. God's definition of success is the person, like Samuel, like Jesus, who did not forsake faithfulness to God, who binds it around their neck, who writes it in the tablets of their hearts. Verse 3, that's a successful man. A successful man is one who is committed and faithful to God, faithfulness to God even in the midst of earthly hardships. That is God's definition of success. If the world has the right to define success, which is often financial and professional in nature, then Jesus would be the least successful person that ever lived, right? He was a carpenter. He didn't make much money. Oh, well, that's okay because he was at least a successful minister, right? He ministered with the Word of God and a lot of people you know, was saved. Really? Was he? Was he a successful minister by the world's standards? In John chapter 6, almost all his disciples left him. He taught about something that was really hard for people to accept, and literally, whole crowd just left him. He lost a lot of church members. That's not really success as a minister, right, by the world's definition of it. And out of the 12 people that stayed, one of them betrayed him. And he ended up on a cross. And the world around him didn't like him. He wasn't popular in social media. If, if success is measured by the world's standards, Jesus was the least successful minister ever. Don't study you know, church planning strategy from him. If, if, if your definition of you know, success is how the world defines it. But if you measure success by God's definition, as we read, then Jesus was the most successful person that ever lived. For he never let go faithfulness, and he bound it around his neck, and he wrote it in his heart, and he followed God even unto the cross itself. Okay. Verse 5 and verse 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. This is a definition of a straight path. We'll just skip that one real quick. Verse 6. One who makes decisions every step according to God's will. When you make every step according to God's will, your path will be straight. Just a quick quick snippet on that. I hope this is distracted from our main thing. But we often pray for, we often, it's interesting, we often pray for God that he would show us the path and we would walk according to it, right? This passage flips it around. He said, don't ask for the path. God will tell you the next step. If you follow that next step, he'll make straight your path. Don't ask God for the next year or two. Ask him, what do I do next? What's, what's faithfulness look like next? Just a quick snippet there. I think that's really interesting. But let's go to verse 7, something more exciting. What about healing? Ooh, what is true health? Is that, is that just some kind of miraculous healing that we get from being obedient? Well, let's, let's look at God's definition. Verse 7, verse 7 and 8. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Verse 8. It will be healing. What's it? It is verse 7. The turning away from evil, it, 
will be healing to the bones and refreshment to the flesh. The fear of the Lord and the turning away from evil will be healing. The promise isn't that God's going to heal you from a flu or a headache if you obey him. The promise is when you turn away from evil, that in itself is healing. It, verse 7, is healing. The fear of the Lord and the turning away from evil, that's a definition of true healing and true refreshment. Obedience to God, reading the Bible, praying, repenting from sin, obeying him, identifying idols in our lives, being faithful to him, that in itself is healing. That is true refreshment. Healing and refreshment in verse 8 cannot be defined as separate from verse 7, just like all the other odd and even verses related before it. Okay, let's summarize. What's the definition uh, verse 2, the definition of added length of days and years of life. The definition of a long life, if understood by verse 1, is not just 100 years, is not just 150 years on earth, but it's life eternal with God, right? Success, verse 3, is defined by one's trust and faithfulness to God's commands, even when it's hard, verse 2. Not the world's definition of success, which is usually financial and professional in nature, but a successful man is one who obeys and stays faithful to God even when the world tells him otherwise, even when it will be more profitable to not obey. A successful man is one who keeps his obedience and faithfulness. Having a straight path, verse 6, is a result of making every step according to God's will. And true health in verse 8 is intricately related and directly related to verse 7, the that the repentance from life and, and turning away from sin unto God is healing in itself. Not that you'll get healed from some kind of disease if you obey. That's not the promise here. God can do that if he likes to, but that's not what's promised here. What's promised here is the repentance of sin in itself is healing. Now, last one in this point before we move on to the third point. What is wealth? Wealth is something very dear to us, isn't it? Let's look at God's definition of it. Verse 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. Notice, it doesn't say, honor the Lord and you will be wealthy. It says, honor the Lord with your earthly wealth. With the first fruits of your produce, which means the best of your resources, not the leftovers. Honor him with the first fruits, with the best. Okay, but if I do that, then I'll be rich, right? That's what verse 10 says. Not quite. Look again at verse 10. Our barns will be filled with plenty and our vats bursting with wine. Yes, it sounds like you're going to get rich. Look at it again. It says your barns will be filled with plenty. What are barns back then used for? To store BMWs? No, it's to store food. That's what barns are used for, to store food. What are vats used for? Your vats, vats will be bursting. It's, it's a place to store drink. This verse is not saying that if you give God money, if you tithe to the church or you give to the poor, God's going to make you richer. No. It's saying that a wealthy man is this. A wealthy man is a man who gives to the Lord the best of his or her resources and is joyful with the Lord simply providing them with their basic needs symbolized by food and drink. A commentator in this verse says, it does not say your purse will be filled with plenty, but your barns. You will not be given more luxuries, but your necessities met. 
Friends, the increase God will give us when we're prioritizing his work above the luxury is an increase of our contentment with simplicity. That's a rich person. An increase of that which is for use, not for show. Food and drink. What is God's definition of a wealthy man or a wealthy woman? Is a man or a woman who gives to the Lord the best of his or her resources and is increasingly joyful with the Lord's provision of meeting their basic needs, not their extravagances. This is consistent with the following verses, verse 13 to 16. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold, more precious than jewels. Nothing can compare with her. It's consistent with the rest of the passage as well. Friends, let's not let the world be our narrator. Let's not let the world have ultimate right and authority in defining what health and wealth is. Joy and peace we will find not by using God to meet the definition of health and wealth that the world provides, but joy will be found when we start to pursue God's definition of health and wealth. Become the kind of person who finds health and refreshment when they overcome evil and sin. Here is a healthy man. Become the kind of person who is joyful and measures their success by how well they stay faithful to God's commandments, even when it's hard to do so. Here is a successful man. Become the kind of man who finds richness in giving to God the best of their resources and is content with the life of simplicity. Here is a rich man. Now, if you're like me, this passage has been very, very discouraging. <laughs> it has been, because we realize how far we are from being this kind of person. Right, and if honest, we realize that how unlikely it is that we might become this kind of person in, by the end of 2017. If this is God's definition of health and wealth and success, I, I honestly don't know if I can ever reach it. More than not, I disobey God and I lean on my own understanding Look at the way I store and use my money. It's still defined by the world's definition of health and wealth. Look at how much identity and value and pride I get from my career. Success for me is still defined highly by the world and not by God. Why should I even try? Who can accomplish all these commandments in the odd numbered verses and become a truly healthy and wealthy person as described in the even numbered verses? Let's go to our third point, our last point. He who gave up his health and wealth. Actually, and I think you guys know the answer to this, um, there is somebody who did that. There is a person who truly became rich and wealthy and healthy and successful in God's eyes. Verse 1, there is somebody who kept all God's commandments perfectly. Verse 3, there is somebody who was faithful to God all his life. Verse 5 and 7, he trusted the Lord with all his heart and turned away from evil. Verse 9, he honored the Lord with all his resources. Who, if not our Lord Jesus Christ? However, what's interesting is this. Think about it. Although Jesus fulfilled all the commandments in the odd-numbered verses of this passage, at the end of his life, there was a point where he didn't really experience the benefits of the even-numbered verses. He did all the odd-numbered verses, and God said, if you do all the odd-numbered verses, you'll, you'll enjoy the even-numbered promises, right? But there's a point in his life where he didn't enjoy it. Think about it. He, verse 1, he obeyed all God's commands. But verse 2, he didn't have peace at the end of his life. He died under the curse, God's curse, Galatians chapter 3 says. He became a curse for us. 
Verse 3, he was perfectly faithful, but at the end of his life, he did not find favor with God or man. Rather, at the end of his life, the divine anger of God was fully poured out unto him. Was it not? God was not favorable towards him at that point, in a sense. Verse 9, he gave to God the best of his resources, but on the cross, he was poor. Not only was his earthly resources taken away from him, but God himself abandoned him. He cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was poor. Why? Why did the only person who truly was able to obey all the odd-numbered verses did not experience at the end of his life the even-numbered promises? Why was he cursed? Well, for us. Because we failed in obeying the odd-numbered verses. Because we haven't obeyed God perfectly. Because we haven't given to God what's best. Because we have allowed the world to define health and wealth, and we've pursued that more than we've pursued God's definition. He died for us so that we can enjoy that which only he deserves. The true health and wealth that he has earned, he gave to us on the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He can redeem us. So he can give us the benefits of a wealthy and healthy man, as God defines it. When he, the only one who truly deserves it, has taken upon himself the curses that we deserve based on our rebellion of God's definition of health and wealth. And now through faith and his saving work on the cross, we can, verse 2, have eternal life. Not because we've obeyed, but because he's obeyed. Verse 4, we can be counted as a successful and favorable man by God's definition, not because we've bound faithfulness and steadfast love in our necks and written in our heart, but because he has. Verse 6, we can have a straight path that leads straight towards eternity to him, not because we've trusted the Lord in every single step we've taken. And verse 10, we can be spiritually wealthy, not because we've been content with simplicity and because we've given to God our best resources, but because he who was truly rich became poor for you. That's how we can enjoy the promises of the even-numbered verses. Well, if he's already done it for us, and at the end of the day we're going to experience all this, then why, why bother doing it now? Why bother pursuing these things now if, if he's already given it to us, right? Well, because the joys of truly becoming healthy and wealthy in eternity that you will enjoy to the fullest and realized later when you see Christ face to face, you can, you can enjoy an extent of that, a large extent of that now. You can Pursue God's definition of health and wealth. Obey the odd-numbered verses, not to earn the blessings of the even-numbered verses, but to enjoy the blessings of the even-numbered verses that Christ has given you. An analogy I've used before, and I think is appropriate now, is an example of me buying a chocolate bar for one of you. With my own money, I've purchased it with my own effort. You didn't, you didn't pay for it. I purchased it, and I gave it to you freely. You didn't pay for it. And then I, I'm giving you some commandments. I'm saying... Open the packet, take a bite, chew it, swallow it, repeat the process. For you to obey my words to you is not a way for you to earn the candy I just gave you, but it's a way for you to enjoy the gift more. You see, do these things, you'll enjoy this free gift more. It's been purchased for you. Take it, follow my word, pursue my definition of health and wealth, God says. You'll enjoy it more now until later when we see him face to face and enjoy it to the fullest. Trust him. 
and vigilantly pursue health and wealth, but not as the world defines it. Be successful. Be the kind of person who measures their success by the level of their obedience and faithfulness to God, not by professional accomplishment. Be rich. Be the kind of person who measures their wealth by how content they are with living in simplicity and giving to God their best resources, not by monetary gain. Be healthy. Be the kind of person that finds health and refreshment from their pursuit of God and repentance of sin, not by longevity of earthly life. Why? Because this is who you are. In Christ, you're a new creation, and you can enjoy the benefits of that now as you're obedient to Him because of what He has done for us. And when you fail, when you fail, when you struggle, when you struggle in repenting from sin, when you when you're put in a time of simplicity in 2017 and you lose faith in God and you're angry at God, and when you don't obey Him, when you forget faithfulness, look at verse 11 to 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof. For the Lord reproves Him whom He loves as a father, the son in whom He delights. When you fail, I, I know I will, when you're put in such, such seasons of simplicity and you fail to trust him and not obey him, be encouraged that in Christ, don't worry too much about the why, but remember that God is God, and he has seen the heavens, and he knows the depths of hell, and he has seen eternity play out. He created it. Trust him. It doesn't mean he doesn't love you. For the Lord reproves him who he loves, as a father, the son, in whom he, del he delights. He's redefining your definition of health and wealth. Because in his eternal wisdom, he knows you can only find true joy when this definition changes and you pursue his definition. And he can't do that by just giving you a textbook. Sometimes he has to turn up the furnace of life as he molds your definition to become like his. And rest assured, how deeply you fall, however heavy his discipline feels, it's never done out of wrath. Christ has drunk the full wrath of God, and you bear it no more. Its discipline is to grow you. When he turns up the heat, as he's molding your definition of health and wealth, do not despise it, because the fire is not meant to consume you, only to refine. And if we continue to be faithful to him, we'll increasingly become the kind of person who is joyful because we are truly healthy and wealthy because of what Christ has given to us. And now, to an extent, we can enjoy it here. So, as we enter into 2017, I wish upon you health and wealth and success and a long life, but not as the world defines it, as God defines it. I pray you would pursue that. For to him be all glory, honor, and praise. To him who is eternally wise and loves you even unto a cross. Pray with me. Father, what an amazing God we have. A God who cares for us and loves us. A God who knows all things and created the heavens and knows the eternal plan and wisdom unfolding and how everything will come into conclusion. And yet you became man and died for us. This shows us you don't only have all knowledge. This shows us you don't only have all power. For a knowledgeable and powerful man, it still, will still be hard to trust if we are not convinced that this man is on our side. But on the cross, you tell us not only 
are you all powerful, not only are you all knowledgeable, but that you're on our side. You love us. And we can trust your definition now. No matter the ups and downs our faithfulness to you might lead us through in this year, we can trust that you have all power and wisdom and that you love us. And if you have given us your son, what else would you withhold from us? Thank you, Father, and be merciful to us as we stumble along 2017, as we try and pursue your definition of health and wealth. Know that it's been given to us on the cross and that we bear our sins no more. We can now pursue this joy, this free gift you have purchased with your blood. Thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.